This is the Urban Political, the podcast on urban theory, research, and activism. Welcome to the Urban Political. My name is Markus Kipp, and today I'm fortunate to talk about digital community organizing with Nathan. I'm Nathan Schneider, and I'm an assistant professor of media studies at University of Colorado Boulder. Um, yeah, I, I run a small new lab called the Media Enterprise Design Lab, and and uh, our work is all about um, bringing democracy to uh, uh, to how we do the media economy and and helping think through models for community ownership and governance. Great to meet you, Nathan. This is the first episode of the series After Corona, Advancing Urban Society, in which we discuss what our confrontation with the corona pandemic reveals about the urban fabric, how our lives are transforming, and we pick apart opportunities and threats of this crisis for advancing urban society. If you have a question for our guests, please do get in touch with us via email, Twitter or Instagram. Each month, we will give them the chance to respond in this podcast. In today's talk, Nathan will help us explore the role of digital media for community organizing in a moment of self-isolation and physical distancing. To begin, Nathan, how do digital media support forms of community organizing in response to the corona outbreak? Could you give us some insights? Well, you know, I, I think like a lot of people, I'm still kind of trying to understand what's going on and and um, trying to follow it. But it's it's amazing how um, you know how many groups have have sprung up around the uh, around the world um, to to enable people to help each other. You know, under the banner often of mutual aid, uh, this old anarchist concept of people actually. Um, uh, stepping into the world and helping each other. It's, it's a, it's a challenging concept because it's, um, uh, because it, you know, historically relies on people being together, um, and being in contact. And this is a, a an experience where people kind of have to be apart in a certain respect. And, and, you know, another, uh, sort of activity that's been building is, is, uh, and, and in some ways one, um, historically better suited to this kind of moment is this this logic of peer production, which is people, uh, you know, we think of like open source software projects and things like that, which is people generally so, uh, physically separated from each other, but individually uh, doing coordinated activity um, toward common goals. And so you see projects out there like attempts to create open ventilator designs and and attempts to crowdsource information and and share information to create a better picture of what is actually going on with the pandemic. Um, so there's a range of different kinds of activities out there. Um, it's it's been really striking to me to see you know which kinds of activities um, uh, uh, might be easier to manifest and more possible to manifest. You know I've I've spent so much of um, uh, recent years focused on the cooperative movement, um, you know, cooperative businesses and, and enterprises and so forth. And these, you know, uh, historically really depend on people coming together, often going to meetings and, 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 and being in the same spaces together. Um, and I think 
as a result of that, um, you know, the this cooperative movement has been really challenged um, by this kind of um, by this kind of outbreak. And um, there's even evidence to suggest back in 1918 in the flu pandemic, then cooperatives really struggled for the, for perhaps some of the same reasons. Um, you know, we have to recognize you know, where we can find solidarity and, and where we might have difficulty finding solidarity at a moment where we need to be physically um, uh, distant. Could you give us a few examples of such digitally enabled forms of community organizing or peer production? You know, one resource that I found really interesting is was developed by uh, a, a community in London called New Speak House, and it's called the Coronavirus Tech Handbook. And it's a uh, um, crowdsourced based on Google Doc uh, Docs uh, directory of all sorts of things that are happening on uh, the scientific front, on uh, in terms of mutual aid groups, um, and and uh, much more. Just lots of information about um, the state of affairs from a kind of grassroots perspective, um, with a focus on on the tech community and what people who are involved in technology can do. Um, uh, you know, other examples are just this huge proliferation of mutual aid groups. Um, there's these maps, for instance, um, there's uh, COVID-19 Mutual Aid UK, which is the directory in the UK. Um, uh, uh, an organization called It's Going Down has a, has a directory online at, um, uh, and that, that's at itsgoingdown.org. Um, and and there are just local groups all over the place. Um, mutual Aid Hub is one in the U.S. That's a, a map of of mutual aid groups across the country where people are organizing things like grocery delivery to uh, elders and and uh, all this sort of thing. And then there are um, uh, there's a a, a project uh, called uh, HelpWithCovid.com, and it's a, a It's a directory that's kind of a, a online marketplace in a way where people can share um, projects that need help, what kind of help they need, and people can get plugged in and volunteer to participate. So these projects um, uh, range from, you know, creating uh, new directories and and uh, you know working on some of those open scientific projects to just volunteering in one's community, um, these sorts of things. So. Uh, it's it's pretty remarkable to see a lot of the stuff that's that's come up uh, in response. Um, I hope these kinds of examples help. At the same time, I feel you know as maybe others feel like a bit lost in the sense that you know I'm I'm at home home homeschooling my kids. You know, um, I, I'm not having a lot of physical contact with um, with people uh, in my community and. Um, And, uh, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm flying blind a little bit. I, in a sense, probably we all are. Uh, and, and, uh, and find that I have less ability to, to really ascertain what, out, what is out there um, uh, than I might ordinary, or, ordinarily, uh, uh, you know, be able to have a sense of by going to a local meeting or, or the like. You know, we're kind of um, trusting these networks to carry us. Currently, social media plays a key role for us in staying socially connected with our colleagues and comrades when we can't meet physically. The biggest go-to platforms are provided by Facebook, Skype, you know, 
Twitter, Zoom, Instagram, Google, etc., um, that are at least partially free of charge. What are the implications of using these platforms? And how are these corporations profiting from our use? Well, I, I can't speak for the corporations or their balance sheets, but certainly, um, you know, we're, we're entering a kind of vulnerability there. Um, if we're relying on these tools to communicate um, much more than we have in the past, you know, we're, we're handing them our data, we're handing them, you know, our, our, our uh, reliance, our allegiance. Um, and we need to be very careful about that. You know, one thing that's, that's been um, uh, interesting to notice, at least among technologists, is there's been a lot of discussion lately uh, in these past few days and weeks about Zoom, which is a tool that lots of people are using. Um, uh, and, you know, I, unlike um, Google and Facebook and Amazon, it's a company that hasn't drawn a lot of scrutiny in the past. And, um, you know, people are kind of scrutinizing its terms of service and trying to understand what kind of data it's really collecting. And, oh, you know, we noticed that, um, you know, if you're making a certain kind of presentation, the host can see whether somebody's uh, uh, actually looking at the, you know, at, at the Zoom screen or not, whether it's, you know, it's the highlighted program on their computer. So it's it's a, um, uh, you know, there are a lot of unknowns here. and And... Uh, at the same time, I think there's a, an opportunity that we're really missing to build on um, and support the open um, collaboration tool ecosystem, which is really quite extensive and something that I've been, um, you know, kind of forcing myself and my students through our lab to uh, to to explore. Um, for for our lab, for instance, we we run um, a series of of all open source tools that we use to collaborate. Um, a, a cloud file hosting service called Nextcloud, um, a, um, a chat a platform called Rocket Chat, um, and a series of other tools that we use to uh, to interact and to work together. And um, uh, and you know we we uh, run and control and and manage these tools, uh, and and it creates a different kind of. Um, Uh, of collaboration experience, right? And one in which the tools are under our control, they're community developed tools, nobody is using them for surveillance. Um, there's no mystery about what the business model is. You know, we pay for our own our own hosting uh, to support these tools. Um, and it, it presents a, a real opportunity for people to be able to, especially as they become more reliant on this kind of digital collaboration, um, to make sure that they they really have a, Uh, a say and, and have control over how these tools work. And one way of doing this is to form um, digital cooperatives that um, can run these tools um, uh, collectively, because it can be you know, frustrating and difficult to run them yourself, uh, I know from experience. Um, but I'm also a member of a, a cooperative called May First, which is a longstanding tech co-op, uh, mainly set up for activists uh, in New York and Mexico, across the US and, and uh, Latin America. And, and um, uh, May First offers that next cloud service. Um, uh, May First uh, offers its members Jitsi video chat. So um, you know, an alternative to uh, to Zoom and, and Google Hangouts and the like, uh, and a variety of other services. And, and that way, you know, we rely on a, a group of, of 
uh, software administrators who who manage the tools for us, so we don't have to worry about it day to day. Um, and it's a it's a really nice way of doing this sort of thing. It's a um, a model where you, you know you can get a lot of the same services, sometimes even better services. Uh, you pay a bit, um, but you have the peace of mind knowing that you know your um, your your tools are being managed by somebody who's accountable to you rather than accountable to some distant shareholders. Can you tell me a bit more about the conditions for digital cooperatives to thrive? particularly with respect to the critical situation today, what does it mean for them to be able to continue functioning or maybe even expanding? Well, I would hope that this kind of um, <clears throat> cooperative focus on these digital services could actually expand in a moment like this, you know, could, could, um, uh, you know, could, could demonstrate that they have a real usefulness and, And could find new members and and new clients. You know, lot, lots of other kinds of businesses are really struggling um, at a moment like this. But I imagine you know the digital collaboration tools are you know are having a bit of a field day, and it would be wonderful to see um, some cooperative um, uh, alternatives enjoying some of that that growth opportunity. I'm not sure. You know, I, I haven't checked in with uh, with them about you know whether that's actually happening, but. Um, but there's, you know, there's been at least some interesting discussion on social media about, um, about how these might work, but, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's a opportunity that we should take up, you know, we should, um, recognize that in a moment where we're more dependent than ever on digital tools, that we make sure we have, um, digital tools that we can trust. Do you have any insights about the demographics of the users in these online communities? I'm particularly interested in how social divisions and forms of marginalization in the offline world get mirrored in cyberspace. Um, it really depends. Uh, so, for instance, um, uh, you know, some some of them will really rely on um, on on some of the demographic limits of of tech culture in, in general. So for instance, you know, one um, that I'm part of um, is called social.coop. It's a social media platform uh, using the Mastodon uh, open source platform that um, is kind of a Twitter-like um, interface and experience. And you know, it's a wonderful tool and, and we have a shared, it's called an instance um, that's cooperatively owned and managed and, and um, Uh, and it tends to be kind of the early adopter techie type, um, and and you know that involves all sorts of you know home you know uh, homogeneities that follow along the types of people who who um, you know tend to be kind of empowered as technologists in in our society today. Um, on the other hand, May First, which I mentioned earlier, um, is an organization that for many years has made a very strong commitment to elevating the voice and power of marginalized people, um, communities of color, activists who are um, working um, embedded in that are part of um, some of the most marginalized communities in, in North America and Central America. And, and um, as a result, um, the, you know, what that organization looks like um, is quite different and um, and so it really depends how they're set up and what the what the kind of intentional uh, organizing methods are but 
you know, I'm very proud to be part of that, that, uh, you know, I'm pr proud to be part of both projects and they each have their value, but I'm, uh, you know, I'm especially grateful for those who for years have been working to build May 1st on the basis of that kind of intentional, um, intentional intentionality about, um, about working with, um, with uh, and among and as the people who need this technology most. On that backdrop, tell me a bit more about your recent project called Community Rule, which is a governance toolkit for online community building. So how do these online tools differ from offline community building and why do we need such tools? Yeah, well, um, th this is a you know fun project for me. It's it, it's come out of a very out of you know direct experience. Um, uh, it's been kind of an outgrowth of a of an ongoing uh, recognition uh, through my work uh, as an administrator of a of a mailing list and other communities online community spaces for the platform cooperative network. So this is a network of people who are trying to build digital cooperatives. And, you know, so we have a mailing list, about 500 people, open discussion list and and um, a few other things like that. And, you know, one thing I noticed is here's a group of people who would love to operate democratically because that's what the community is all about. Um, and yet um, the tools that we have available, you know, whether it's a Facebook group or a, um, a, an email list or whatever, um, really don't aren't equipped for democratic practice. And. Um, and, you know, it made me realize how, you know, I did some research around this, uh, um, draft papers available and that sort of thing, uh, on, um, on how this, this kind of logic of implicit feudalism, as I, I call it, has pervaded the, the technologies that we use for building community online. Um, and that really there's a deep bias in these technologies for, um, people to have power that is basically unaccountable um, and where um, any um, gesture toward democracy um, requires a lot of extra effort. So there are these outlier cases like Wikipedia and, and this sort of thing where you have um, democratic practice, but um, they had to work really hard to get that um, and to establish the underlying rules. So, so um, um, you know, one thing that Uh, also really excited me was there's a project called the Contributor Covenant, which is a, a, a code of conduct that um, thousands of open source software projects have adopted. And it was developed by a, uh, a fantastic activist in, in the open source community, uh, Coralineda Emke. And, um, and, the, um, uh, and just adopting this thing um, in our platform co-op communities um, really helped us address some, some, you know, particular challenges we had in the community just to have some rules on hand. But I realized that that code of conduct doesn't include governance. It, it tells you what's not allowed, but it doesn't tell you who is in charge and, and how they got there. And so community rule is an effort to do, um, is to, to, to like with the co contributor covenant to just make it easy for communities to adopt a simple um, template or, or adapt a template um, uh, for, you know, how power works in their community. This is often, a you know, I think of it as a layer in the stack of community building uh, that's often missing. And, um, and community rules, an effort to make 
um, that governance layer in the stack more available. So we have a set of templates, um, things like um, uh, you know a simple elected board structure or a jury system or a, a, a kind of petition-based governance system or or even the, the the standard benevolent dictator for life. You know that implicit feudalism that we so often see um, and. Um, and enables groups to make much more explicit what what is our underlying governance um, practice, and and I think this is especially important among these new mutual aid groups that are showing up right now. You know, I've I've spent a lot of time, you know, covering and working with social movements, um, and um, and uh, and one of the deep, you know, most persistent failures I've seen, and many others have observed. You know, this goes back to. Um, you know, for instance, Joe Freeman's famous uh, essay from the early 70s, The Tyranny of Structurelessness, that, that activist groups so often, you know, when they're formed in a very energized moment, they don't think about governance. They think that, you know, we'll have this, this excitement and this common um, purpose forever and we'll always be able to solve our problems in that way. Um, but, you know, usually over after any amount of time passes, if, a, if an organization doesn't have those basic questions answered of who holds power and how and why, um, uh, uh, they, you know, they can really tear themselves apart. So as these new organizations, these new mutual aid groups are forming, you know, I hope that they have, you know, I, I would love for, for this kind of toolkit to make it easier for them to, um, you know, to get their governance house in order um, but before the, the, the difficult questions really strike. Um, and so they have some framework for uh, addressing those questions and they can focus on the work that really matters rather than agonizing over um, over basics that should have been addressed from the start. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's striking how, you know, if you think of your average Facebook group, you know, they're they're really using much more primitive governance practices than even like you know, a typical, you know, fraternal organization or garden club or, you know, like your local average community organization full of, you know, often elderly people, you know, usually they have, you know, established governance structures and practices, you know, that are kind of no brainers. Um, and yet our vast online communities have none of that and are relying on this, this kind of strange regressive feudal logic uh, while pretending that they're advanced and, and, um, of the future. So, you know, I, I, in some ways, the goal of this project is to help online communities just kind of catch up to how, uh, to the best practices of, of offline governance. I'd like to come back to the digital cooperatives and the urban dimension. In 2018, you published the book called Everything for Everyone, How the Radical Tradition is Shaping the Next Economy. And in that book, looking at the cooperative movement, you argued that it could gain new vigor by drawing on digital technologies. However, you also noted a disconnect between the tradition of established local cooperatives and the emergence of new digital co-ops. So please elaborate on this for us. You know, right now, a lot of the cooperative legacy um, is you know, is really, is really operating, operating out of methodologies and practices and also public policies that were designed, you know, generations ago. And um, meanwhile, especially since 2008, as you mentioned, 
you know, there's been a real resurgence of, of young people trying to form new kinds of cooperatives, especially in the digital context. And, um, you know, in a lot of ways, the, the challenge is there's a major disconnect between these two, between, you know, for instance, um, here in Colorado, where I live, there's a $130 billion cooperative bank, um, you know, that was set up through farmer organizing beginning a century ago. Um, and so there's lots of capital in the cooperative sector. Um, but, you know, among the young people trying to start technology cooperatives, you know, that bank is not, you know, is not equipped to, you know, to support them is not, you know, is not a kind of live option uh, for them at this point. Um, and, uh, and this kind of pattern recurs all in different ways all over the world. Um, and so on the one hand, there's this new energy. On the other hand, there's, there's um, this powerful legacy to build on, um, but they haven't quite met each other yet. And I think that's, you know, really the, the opportunity that we have um, to enable us to transform our communities um, so that uh, as we have before with cooperative enterprise, um, uh, so that we really have the capacity, for instance, to create, you know, rideshare cooperatives and, and um, um, uh, you know, ways of, of, of providing the, the benefits of a kind of platform economy in a way that's also accountable to our, to our communities in, in, in fundamental ways. Um, and so, you know, I really think of it as an opportunity that we have to decide whether we want to take. Um, do we want to ensure that, um, you know, as we did in the U.S. Uh, in the 1930s, um, uh, there was a decision that, you know, it would be possible for communities to form local credit unions, um, local cooperative banks. There was a decision that um, rural areas that didn't have electricity because investors didn't want to invest in them um, could form their own cooperatives and provide their own electricity and get public financing to do it. Um, uh, you know, we need to decide that that um, we really do want accountable online platforms and accountable public infrastructure um, and, and you know, build the ecosystem required to do that. Right now, um, you know, we don't have that ecosystem and, and there's a lot of brave pioneering uh, people trying to build the next generation of cooperatives, in some cases, you know, succeeding. Um, but they're they're up against a lot, and and um, it's time, you know, to make a you know a public decision about, um, you know, ensuring that these these kinds of businesses have the same opportunities or or better uh, than uh, than in businesses that are mainly designed just to enrich investors. What could such public choices mean concretely in the face of Uber, Lyft, and so on? Well, I'll give you an example. So, um, for instance, uh, here in the U.S., um, a few years ago, uh, the city of Austin, Texas, you know, very, you know, a major tech hub, um, uh, decided that the city council decided that they were going to require Uber and Lyft to follow the law. So they were going to require these ride-sharing companies to uh, to fingerprint drivers, um, just like just like taxi drivers, you know, were fingerprinted just for public safety reasons. And, um, and they, uh, the, the companies refused to accept this, um, this requirement and, and actually left the city. And in response, the city council set up, uh, you know, enabled the establishment of, of a, um, 
of a nonprofit rideshare company uh, called Ride Austin um, uh, and a, a cooperative of taxis called, um, you know, ATX ta Taxi Co-op. And, and, um, and, you know, these services worked well, you know, the, the Ride Austin was a, you know, perfectly usable and, and affordable rideshare option. I've used it. Um, you know, it turns out that, you know, building uh, a rideshare simple uh, service isn't, isn't rocket science and, and it's, it's possible to do without, you know, the mega billions of Uber and Lyft. And, and um, it's a reminder that when we, um, uh, uh, stop allowing these companies to, um, you know, to, to break our laws and to, um, and to, uh, you know, sneak into our communities and, and take over, um, and instead, you know, demand that we, that, you know, we're going to get these services in a better way. Um, you know, we really can do it. And, and, and there are all sorts of ways in which we could make that demand, you know, for instance, um, you know, agreeing that we're not going to allow surveillance capitalism to, um, you know, to rule our, our digital lives. So just, you know, just like phone companies aren't, you know, aren't allowed to listen in on your conversations and, and, um, and then send you, you know, uh, quote unquote, relevant robocalls from advertisers. Um, you know, what if we just decided that, that, this idea of, of reading everybody's e Google, reading everybody's emails and, and then, you know, sending ads and response is, is not okay. And, you know, force better kinds of business models to emerge instead. Um, uh, you know, I think we're getting to a moment where we're starting to be ready for that, where we're starting to um, establish rules that, you know, that, that um, uh, are putting some meaningful constraints. You know, I, I, I think, um, there's some dangers in in some of the directions that, for instance, GDPR went in, which, which uh, you know, the the major European privacy rules, which, um, you know, in some ways just kind of raise the compliance burden for a lot of these companies. Um, you know, I, th I I hope that we can set up a new set of uh, uh, frameworks that will actually encourage um, innovation and and support you know a, a wider range of smaller kinds of businesses in the tech economy that can be more dynamic and responsive to people. Um, you know, we really have that opportunity. And, um, uh, you know, cases like Austin remind us that, um, that we don't need these big companies uh, in order to get these kinds of services. Um, uh, or, or we can be much more careful about how we, um, you know, what we allow and, and what we don't allow. And sometimes that means just applying old fashioned rules like rules created for phone companies to the internet and stop pretending that the internet is some um, completely new territory in which in which old uh, ideas you know are no longer relevant in fact you know a lot of the things we need um, a lot of the guidance and restraint that we need on you know on the on the internet are you know com can come from you know practices that you know were applied to older forms of media um, and, uh, and and further you know, we we need mechanisms mechanisms for self-regulation, so that governments aren't don't have to um, take that whole burden of regulation, but instead users themselves can um, can co-govern and have a voice, you know, and have a democratic place uh, in their networks. Uh, and that's what the you know the platform cooperativism work is all about. It's about um, ensuring that you know that it's okay for 
or ensuring that it's a norm for um, people who are relying on certain digital tools to really have a voice in those uh, in those networks. Thank you very much, Nathan, for sharing your thoughts. Thanks to you for listening. For more information, visit our website urbanpolitical.podigy.io Please subscribe and follow us on Twitter.